hormone harmony is not just a supplement for women going through perimenopause, menopause, or postmenopause. It's become a phenomenon. Women cannot stop talking about it on social media. A bottle of hormone harmony is sold every 24 seconds. Happy Mammoth, the company that created Hormone Harmony, is dedicated to making women's lives easier. That means using only science-backed ingredients that have been proven to work for women. They make no compromise when it comes to quality, and it shows. Hormone Harmony contains science-backed herbal extracts called adaptogens. Now, here's the beauty about adaptogens. They help the body adapt to any stressors, like chaotic hormonal changes that happen naturally throughout a woman's life. So, Hormone Harmony isn't just for menopause. Any women with symptoms of hormonal imbalances can take it, but it's perfect for those with those horrible menopause symptoms that put a woman's life on hold. Hot flashes and night sweats, racing thoughts and low moods, poor sleep and feeling tired all the time, occasional bloating and gas, no desire to be in bed next to someone, if you know what I mean. Yeah, Hormone Harmony can help with all of these things. And the biggest benefit feeling like myself again. And that's what women mention over and over in the reviews. There are over 17,000 reviews for Hormone Harmony. For a limited time, you can get 15% off your entire first order at happymammoth.com. Just use our code, which is the acronym of the podcast, T-S-N-O-T-Y-A-W at checkout. That's the podcast acronym at checkout at happymammoth.com calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Hi there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray, and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. We'll be kicking off today's episode with our usual Books with Hooks segment, after which we'll go to today's guest. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Hi everyone, welcome to another Books with Hooks. As per usual, we're going to dive right in. Carly, will you kick us off with the first query letter? Yes, and of course, before we begin, we want to talk about our awesome deep dive workshop series that we've been doing. Anybody that's listening and is attending, you know how much fun we're having every Tuesday night. We actually have pre-selected our dates for next year, which is going to be the same kind of time period. So we have the 16th of January is when it begins to the 19th of March. We're talking 2024. We are giving you lots of time to block it into your schedule. The registration is going to begin later this year, so probably around November keep an eye out and we will let you guys know but next year january 16th to the 19th of march you can join us again for next year's deep dive workshop series and now for the query letter today's query letter begins with a trigger warning war genocide sexual assault dear ms murray 
The Dollmaker's Mother is a 250-page work of multi-generational and emotionally engaging historical fiction that I proudly submit for your consideration. From the last days of the Ottoman Empire in Turkey to the Armenian neighborhoods of Providence, Rhode Island in the 1990s, this novel completely immerses its readers in an era that is widely unknown. It is a story of survival, motherhood, and love based on stories from my own family tree. In 1915, Victoria Kardelian and her family are forced from their comfortable life in Gurin, western Armenia, by the Turkish government. Victoria survives a weeks-long march through the Syrian desert, only to be taken as a maid in a Turkish household. Stripped of her freedom, she is raped and made to stand by as her captors raise her child as their own until a crisis separates Victoria from her daughter completely. Burdened by the shame of her rape and illegitimate child and the guilt of losing her baby girl, Victoria joins a group of volunteer rescuers led by Danish social worker Karen Jeppe, working to free other women in situations like her own. Framed by the discovery almost six decades later, a pair of mysterious Armenian dolls at Victoria's grave, the dollmaker's mother is the story of Victoria's search for redemption as an immigrant, wife, sister, and aunt, and ultimately through the reunion with her daughter she lost decades before. I have spent my career advancing women and girls through leadership and storytelling as highlighted by my TEDx talk, Today's Girls Are Tomorrow's Leaders, numerous op-eds, media interviews and awards, now I'd like to shine a spotlight on the lesser-told stories of brave women who not only survived but resisted the horrors of the Armenian genocide. The opening pages are below for your review. Thank you for your consideration. Wonderful, Carly. Thank you. Can you give us an indication of the word count there and then your take on that? So this one comes in around 3.03. All right, so first of all, we start with the page number is kind of mentioned as opposed to the word count number. So I would just flip that instead of saying 250 pages, tell us the word count instead. That's a bit more on par for industry standards there. So there's a number of things which you guys obviously can't see because you are listening to me, but they are bolded. So when you guys see the, you know, when you guys are Kofi subscribers, you're able to see what's bolded. So I would recommend not bolding things. I think obviously the idea is to draw attention to it. That's why we bold things. But I really, I don't think we need that in the query letter itself. There's a number of things that I also cut, you know, I would cut the completely immerses its readers in an era that's widely unknown. I mean, sometimes that's kind of the point of historical fiction to kind of shed light on things. Again, that's probably, it's not that you need to save word count actually with this query letter, but I, it's not really something that I, that I think we need. This is a really, really strong query letter. You know, it, it has so much going for it. It is intense and in depth and historically, you know, resonant and just so many, so many things that I think are so interesting. But I think the most important thing I want to know here is more about the present day connection, right? So what is this present day connection? It's, it's mentioned really quickly, but I think it's probably going to have a lot to do with the actual book itself. So that felt like a little thin to me, but you know, overall, overall, it's quite strong. I would include links to these, you say like numerous op-eds, media interviews and awards. I would probably link to this in your future query letter. If you're not for the sake of the podcast, that's also totally fine. And then in your email signature, you could also even have links there or social media handles or a link to your website. So but this is this is really this is really intense. I'm definitely intrigued. Thank you, Carly. And for our listeners today, you're going to be hearing a lot of our pets. I think I'm hearing Levi there in the background with Carly and Muggle is snoring really loudly next to me as well. So all of our animals say hi. Right. Okay, Carly, can you give us an indication of what was in those opening pages? So we start in Rhode Island. We have a timestamp, September 1991. We are told it is a prologue. We have a character kind of 
coming to the cemetery, the graveyard, where she visits every week. She says her and her husband come every week to lay fresh flowers, and every week it's their same routine. There is something unusual about this week. They notice kind of in the line of their ancestors, a couple rows down, there is something unusual placed in front of somebody's grave. And so she's kind of walking over to it. She sees it. It's the dolls that are mentioned in the query letter. She kind of unwraps them, and there are interesting names on the back that's like triggering some memories and some family members, and she's starting to put all some dots together. We jump to chapter one. We are in Western Armenia in 1915. We get the sense that the war is happening. There are soldiers that are coming, checking into people's houses. We don't get the sense that the war maybe has necessarily begun, but they are coming to collect boys and men, send them off to war, and the, the women will stay at home. So we have the beginning of the war. Thank you. Now, prologue. Dun, dun, dun. What did you think about it? And do you think the author started in the right place? So yes, I do. Because what I was talking about in the query is that I want to know more about what's happening in the contemporary storyline, right? And we start in the contemporary storyline. This is a frame narrative. We get the setting, what's happening, the contemporary relevance. And now we know we're going to kind of go back. So I really actually think this, this prologue works. I think what especially works is that we are doing something expected in that we visit a cemetery and you know care for our loved ones leave them flowers but something unexpected is happening right it's something out of the ordinary which is why i think this prologue works really well right away we know that there's something different that's happening on this day so i think that all that works very well in the prologue though we do slip into the past a little bit of backstory some explaining you know who obviously who they're visiting at the cemetery i honestly don't think we need to do that i really would just encourage them to stay in the present as much as possible don't flex your historical research muscles. I think authors want to be like, here's all the work I did, you know, and it's so tempting. But the best historical fiction authors just like lay the groundwork so thinly that we're not really registering all the kind of learning that we're doing. So I would really just pay attention to that in the prologue regarding chapter one. So I we have a little bit of like weather. This author, I think both in the prologue and in, in chapter one, I made some notes about making references to weather. That's something that I definitely think we should we should be cutting. There's a lot of other ways to kind of denote weather, such as like the layer of clothes that someone is wearing, the type of boots that they're wearing. Like there's other ways to convey weather instead of saying like, you know, exactly what's happening with the light rain in the air is, is what this person says. So one of the most important things I think is that we need to understand the level of danger. And I think these opening pages build towards it. I obviously don't have a large sample, but we really need to explore the sense of danger. Is it imminent? Is it passive? We get a sense that, yeah, this, there were Turkish soldiers kind of coming through. They had left some scraps and like the dogs were eating them, that sort of thing in terms of like food leftovers. And the babies kind of weren't sleeping very well. One of the issues here is also that there's a lot of characters, right? This is a large family and there's lots of children. That's a little bit concerning to me. We also have a bit of a flashback in terms of like when the soldiers came into the house to kind of like check things out. And that's again told in a flashback. I'm kind of wondering why we don't start with something like that because we're like it, we're in the middle of the night telling us why they don't sleep is, is because of the soldiers. So, you know, I, I think that's that's a little bit concerning to me. I think one of the things that's a bit tricky about this is that we really want to feel sympathetic for this character. But I think one of the things that historical fiction as a genre tends to do really well, especially female protagonist historical fiction, is that we are given a female character that wants to fight that really wants to make her way in the world that, you know, either wants to join the war or wants to join the resistance, right? I'm thinking like Nightingale, the Kate Quinn books, my client, Jane Healy, she wrote a book called Goodnight for Paris, where we're following these really fierce women. Because this is this character is like in her teens, 
I don't know. I'm just, I'm not getting the sense that we're going, we have that, that fight yet. And obviously it's so early in the book, but I just kind of want to draw your attention to this because I think female readers of historical fiction of this nature, again, want want women that fight back. So I think we got to, we got to make sure we're planting some seeds for this. And there's one really beautiful sentence I wanted to draw attention to, because I do think the writing is really lovely. It says the foothills and cliffs beyond the village bore witness to the train of men and boys walking down the road that led out of the town. So we we do have this ominous setting set up for us. And I think this is really strong. I think you're going to get some good requests. Thank you, Carly. Just bouncing off of something you said there. Yeah, for our listeners, you know, don't tell us that it's raining. Show the character swiping raindrops off their glasses, for example. Don't tell us that it's windy. Show them clutching at their hat as, you know, it's about to blow away, etc. So these are all things that are showing versus telling that can be integrated, you know, at a micro level and can be used in action beats as well. So for those of you who haven't subscribed to our newsletter, last month I did a whole breakdown on dialogue tags versus action beats and how action beats can be used for world building, for setting, for description, for revealing things about character, etc, etc. So take a look at that. Right, Cece, can you read us the next query letter? Dear Carly, Cece and Bianca, like so many of your readers, I am grateful for and obsessed with your podcast, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. Thank you for all that you do. Fans of the mighty writing duo, Christina Lauren, music lovers who appreciate the musical references in Nick Hornby's High Fidelity, and viewers of Hulu's Single Drunk Female would also enjoy Redacted, my 75,000-word work of romantic women's fiction. Singing is the one thing that comes naturally for Beatrice Birdie Baum, but her mother insists that songs are only for the Lord and for church. Growing up, Birdie felt like a puzzle that never fit. And when she discovers that her father, a rogue musician that was supposed to be dead, might be alive, Birdie realizes it's time to fly the coop. She devises a plan, run away, find her dad, and get famous by any means possible. In Washington, D.C., the puzzle pieces together, Birdie reunites with her father, a man who shares her love of songs, cigarettes, and stiff shots of whiskey. Unfortunately, his addictions led to poor health. While busting her butt, working to support the family unit, and slaying the mountain of medical debt, Birdie joins a local cover band. It's not a dream, but it allows her to stay with her father. Winning the upcoming national singing competition would solve all her problems. All it takes is time, money, and home health care, neither of which Birdie can afford. She starts saving and scheming. Nothing can lead her astray from her goals, except him. Getting swept up in a romance was not a part of the plan, but fellow vinyl worshipper Jesse Walker might be more than Birdie's usual one-nighter. Besides, her prickly father likes him. However, couples with certain stigmas in 1992 face obstacles, and Birdie has her heart set on another prize, that national singing competition. When grief and opportunity simultaneously present themselves, Birdie must make difficult decisions give up her dreams of fame and fortune, or give up everything for the sake of love. Although my singing resembles the caterwaul of dueling alley cats, I learned what music should sound like from my father, a professionally trained vocalist. When not writing or singing in my car, I enjoy spending time with my insane terrier. I am a creative writing instructor and a dedicated member of WFWA. The Wild Rose Press published my first novel, and my articles on love, divorce, and cringeworthy dates have appeared on divorcemoms.com, Mylexia, and Reed C's writing contests. 
Manuscript Content Triggers, Issues of Racism and Abortion Discussion. Thank you for your time and consideration. May I send you the full manuscript? Sincerely, Redacted. Thank you, Cece. Okay, word count and your take on that. So this is clocking in at 450 words. It's a little on the longer side, and I'll have a note about where to trim. But let's start with genre. So you're calling this romantic women's fiction, and technically that's not really a genre. Would you say it's more women's fiction or more romance? The expectations are a little different. So for the sake of maximizing your chances of finding your agent, choose one. And, you know, the difference is that in, in the romance genre, the romance takes center stage, whereas in the women's fiction genre, it's more about the protagonist's journey as a person, for example, a second coming of age. Now, in terms of the plot paragraphs, it's interesting because this is reading closer to the actual pages of a novel. There's a lot of great writing, isolating sentences with italics for dramatic effect, and really great imagery, like the two separate lines about how she feels like a puzzle that never fit, and then later a line about how she finally feels like the puzzle came together. And again, that would be great for the novel. For the query letter, keep it simple, introduce the character, give us the inciting incident, plot escalation, major dramatic question. This will allow you to compress because you do need to compress here. There's a lot of redundancy. Here's an example. You don't need the line about how she plans to run away and find her father. And then another line on how she moves and finds him. You can just have one. There's also a line that mentions couples with certain stigmas. However, couples with certain stigmas in 1992 face obstacles. We don't really know what that stigma is. And I'm wondering if that's intentional. Maybe it's a reveal. I'm, I'm not quite sure. If it's not a reveal, then I would just include that because you want to have specificity in your query letter. That's definitely one of the goals. Other than that, I'm really intrigued about the major dramatic question and I'm curious to read more. Thank you, Cece. I'm guessing from the trigger warning that it's an interracial relationship, which I think should be specified in the query letter because you never want that to be a reveal in the novel. You know, that somebody turns out to be, you know, a black character or, or whatever the case may be is. So. Yeah, maybe say an interracial relationship in the 90s has got certain stigmas, etc. Okay, Cece, what was in those opening pages? So we start with stream of consciousness, the protagonist thinking about how she had to answer questions for an article about her life on Rolling Stone. She'd grab a bottle of tequila and then she'd cover certain aspects of her journey while omitting others, except the more she drank, the more she'd reveal. She'd say things like, about how she was lied to about her father not being alive and how she sacrificed her dreams for her father, about the, the guy in her life, the him. And there's a breaking of the fourth wall in which she invites the readers to sit back while she does tell her story. And then there's a line break. We go to DC, August 1992, and we get general info on the city and the country at the time. The protagonist is celebrating her birthday with her friends, which is told very much through a looking back vibe. And she thinks of that night, the night that everything changed. She's parting really hard, flirting with the hot bartender. And then she looks at a commercial on TV for the singing reality competition, The Superstar Search, which I'm thinking is probably kind of like American Idol. So that's that's what happens. Interesting. Breaking the fourth wall can either be really amazing in a novel or it can be quite problematic depending on, on how the author does it. So let's hear your take on that. So that is actually my second note. I'll start with my first, which is, okay, so the author was very sneaky here because it says chapter one, right? But that first part before the first line break, that is a prologue, okay? It is a sneaky, sneaky prologue because 
it's it's essentially like a telling prologue, right? When the author's talking to the reader and saying, look, this is my story. I'm going to tell you about it. It's a little crazy. Here's what happens. I don't think we need that prologue. It feels a little info dumpy. I'd rather start in scene. There are situations in which a short telling prologue can work. And that's usually when it's used to build tension as opposed to just emotionality and character. Emotionality and character are typically not enough to hook a reader on the first pages. A great example of a telling prologue that does that is the prologue in The Ballerinas. And the first line, she tells you that she's going to kill someone when she returns to Paris. And then in chapter one, she's returning to Paris. So you do have that, you know, that plot driven question that's established. Okay, so about the second note. Um, And before I offer this note, I have to come clean. I have a confession to make. My name is Cece. And I struggle with breaking the fourth wall. Like, I just do. It is hard for me as a reader to enjoy a novel that does it. Are there examples? Of course. There are always novels that break the rules and it works. But for me, it's usually difficult. Like, it's just my taste. I I don't like it as a device in, in general. I'm bringing this up because there's a lot about the scene that's really good. There's great movement, great characterization. The energy's working. Like... It's such a fun novel, right? Like the author is very talented. And I think the breaking of the fourth wall is getting in the way. I think it's stripping the tension. I would rather be immersed in the moment. However, because I know I have this issue, this taste issue, I'm just being honest. So when you review my notes and you'll obviously get the comments on the margins that I always make when I'm when I'm reading a manuscript, you'll be able to tell for yourself and make that decision. But for me, I don't think it's working. I would remove it. Thank you, Cece. Yeah, that was my concern there because I haven't seen it done really, really well all that often. And remember, you want to make it as easy as possible for an agent to say yes, especially with those opening pages, rather than giving them excuses to say no. Okay, Carly, let's go to your next query letter. Dear Carly, Bianca, and Cece, thanks for all you do for the writing community. After discovering the podcast last year, I've taken on board as much of your advice as possible and am now beginning to query agents, something I don't know that I would have had the confidence to do without the podcast. Please find my query in opening five pages below. I'm currently seeking representation for my upmarket novel, The Unforgettables, complete at 78,000 words. This third-person, multiple-POV story would appeal to fans of the near-future realness of Jessamine Chan's The School for Good Mothers and the family-centered social comedy of Monica Alley's Love Marriage. What happens when the children of online influencers are old enough to realize that every facet of their lives has been consumed by hungry fans and complete strangers? The Unforgettables brings together a group of these children as adults grappling with the realities of fame and a search history results they never asked for. Set in the near future, this novel imagines a world where influencers are apex celebrities leaving their children to either follow in their footsteps or try to recover from a lifetime of uninvited public obsession with their lives as they try to forge their own path in the world. After years of online comparisons to a sister she can never measure up to and rebelling against appearances on her mother's hugely successful parenting blog, 16-year-old Hope runs away to the city. 20-something ads, issues, social media, and social interaction in general, as he tries to maintain a quiet life and build a career in the government, distancing himself from the publicly polyamorous parents who live-streamed his birth to a global audience. Blue joined her mother in the family business and was happy with her life as a uni student and second-generation influencer until a family secret gets them both hashtag cancelled. Then there's Greg, who wakes up with 3.2 million followers, a famous YouTuber for a girlfriend, and no idea how he got them, or if he even wants them, after an extreme sports stunt gone wrong. 
Adverts for a newly created secret support group finds Hope, Ads, Blue, and Greg meeting every week in the Dowdy Community Hall of St. Bartholomew's Church. It is a safe space to vent about the struggles of secondhand fame and a respite from the families who made them famous in the first place. When someone tips off the press about the group's existence, they're once again thrown back into the public eye. Could it be Blue trying to take the heat off her family drama? Is it Hope's mother who's just trying to get her daughter back? And what do they really know about their strangely ungoogleable support group leader anyway? The group find they have to work together if they want to figure out who put them back in the spotlight. Through flashbacks, the present day, we learn how influencer culture has affected each member in the relationships of their parents. This culminates in the Noise Awards, the Oscars of the influencer world, where it's time for a showdown with the culprit and finally set the record straight about their overbearing families and the millions of fans watching them at home. I'm a British writer and social media marketer living and working in San Francisco, which I've called home since 2014. Previously published works include personal essays and culture pieces for The Bold Italic, Crack, Stylus Magazine, The Insecure Girls Club. The Unforgettables, written in English, is my first novel. Thank you for your consideration. Redacted. Thank you, Carly. Okay, word count. And what was your take on that? All right. So if I cut the little preamble at the beginning, we're still at 530 words. I think everybody listening could probably tell that was a bit of a that was a bit of a longer one there. So I don't know if I want to start with the small stuff or the big stuff today. I think I'm going to start with the big stuff. Okay. So book about influencer culture. Love it. I think we're missing a massive comp here, which is Book of Essie. That book came out a number of years ago, but that was kind of the OG book on children of influencers. Really, really great book. The part I'm confused about about this query letter is this near future realness. I'm like, this book is now. Like, the internet started, you know, decades ago. And so there are lots of children of blogger parents or even Instagram, right? Instagram has been around since 2011 at this point, you know, YouTube, et cetera. So these children are growing up. Like we're starting to see these HGTV kids, again, rebelling against their parents. So I don't understand exactly why this is near future because there's nothing speculative about this novel. So that part is interesting to me. I have been starting to get some of these influencer children pitches. Again, I think this is incredibly interesting. And so I'm all on board for this. I think what I'm trying to figure out is what is happening in this book because again multi-pov books we all know how hard they are to pitch and again i have a lot of empathy for this but multi-pov books are always about what brings this particular cast of characters together in this particular moment so when you're telling me all these different characters what they have in common that's great but again like what is happening at a as a catamalistic event in this exact moment to bring these characters together that's the piece that i need to understand and which i don't understand at this point we know that there's going to be an award ceremony things are going to be dramatic. The reason I'm saying all this is I think this is an incredibly interesting project, but I just don't think this query letter is doing the service of focusing on the right things. And so that's kind of my my biggest advice is forward momentum, what brings this particular cast of characters together. This is the most important thing that I think we're missing in this query letter. And it's a bit long. Sometimes in a long query letter tells me like this person doesn't know what to focus on either, right? Thank you, Carly. Yeah, all the sympathy for the writers. <laughs> I'm exactly the same. It's like, I'm just going to throw every damn thing in there and hope something sticks. So much easier to write a novel than a query letter. Okay, what was in those opening pages? So we start in chapter one. We're told it's hope. Hope's point of view. We're told about the church that they meet at, which we're told about St. Bartholomew's. We're kind of, we have a description of the, of the church itself. We get a sense of what's going on in the town, a bit of a juxtaposition between all the hustle and bustle kind of going on and nobody really knowing what's going on behind the scenes in this church, right? With all these influencers. So we have our third person, which everybody knows. And 
we have one of the characters leaving the church kind of walking out. And then all of a sudden we see like a TV news anchor kind of van open up with like cameras and TV, you know, film crew kind of trying to capture these people leaving this meeting. And then we jump back to three weeks earlier, three weeks earlier, our main character we've been told about, she is at her house with her family. We're told it's her sister's birthday, the one that she has some competition against. And her mother is doing a big like, blog you know youtube thing about the sister's birthday and none of the family members are there so it's kind of supposed to show exactly how ridiculous the performative element of social media can be and she's texting with her friend saying like do you want to go to the movies like i want to get out of my house and the friend isn't there so she can't leave and then she escapes and and goes to the park and, and then we're done Thank you, Carly. I'm getting vibes from the TV show. It's about a a mother who has three children, one who tried to be a dancer, one who's trying to be an actor. They're the older kids and their careers haven't gone well. And then the youngest kid is like Justin Bieber, posts something on YouTube and suddenly launches as as a singer. It's, It's really funny and the social commentary is on point. Okay, so what was your take there, Carly? I haven't seen this and now now I want to. So my big question here is kind of around the age of our character. So we are told that she is 16, but it was third like third person point of view, right? And so we have this distance, which again, it's being pitches up market, which I understand. I'm concerned though, we're starting in a very like 16 year old point of view, which is she's frustrated with her parents, calls her friends to go to the movies. Like to me, nothing about these opening pages says this is an adult novel. I get the sense that we want to critique influencer culture. You can critique influencer culture in a YA novel. So I don't get the sense, again, that this has to be adult fiction. That's kind of one of my main concerns here. Another thing is we're focusing a lot on this building, the St. Bartholomew's Church. If this is meant to be a character, you know, one of those settings where it's like this church has a lot to do with so much, especially with third person, is the church kind of the narrator of the book, right? There, there is a lot of things we can play with with this concept. I don't think this is fully realized because how it's coming off is just that we're talking a lot about the church, you know, in the in the first few pages, which again, I want to focus on the forward momentum of the actual book itself. I'm almost wondering with our chapter one, whether you should say three weeks earlier, because in the next chapter, you say three weeks later. And so to set that expectation that like something is building and something is happening, I think that could be useful to kind of build up that tension. But we're, we're already starting to slip into the past a little bit here, you know, talking about the parents and their history of blogging and everything like that, which again, really need to work on forward momentum. That would be that would be really important to me. In terms of just, you know, how keeping things there was a big font change you know we we were in Arial and then we switched to Calibria at some point you know obviously that stood out to me and, and caught my eye and wondered what we were copying and pasting and why so obviously just just do a last minute change before you before you submit but yeah I feel like this project still has to figure itself out I feel like it doesn't know what it is yet and that's not a problem you know but I really think we have a little ways to go to figure out is this actually an adult novel why is it in third person POV? Does it have to be in third person POV? Is it for adults? Is it for kids? What are you trying to say about influence our culture? And why is it slightly um, futuristic? I don't know. I think we have some figuring out to do. Thank you, Carly. Right, Cece, we're going to go to you for the last query letter. Dear Cece, I am sending you this query in the hopes it might fit the memoir submissions you're looking for, as indicated on your manuscript wish list page. Title Redacted is a 90,000 word memoir by Redacted as told to Redacted. When a 15-year-old Redacted receives an unheard of invitation to travel to Moscow, Russia to study at the world-famous Redacted 
Ballet Academy, she doesn't hesitate. For her, moving to Russia is a way to do something no one else has done, even if it means leaving her family in Texas and flying with an injured leg to a country on the other side of the world where she doesn't speak the language. Once in Moscow, Redacted thinks her life has finally turned into an actual fairy tale, accompanied by a Tchaikovsky soundtrack and an onion dome set sprung from the collective minds of centuries of Russian artists. But soon, she finds Russia to be dark, lonely, and completely unintelligible, even amidst genius ballet instruction and rich friendships. As her career takes off, Redacted must reckon her love for her adopted homeland and its world-famous ballet theaters with the danger of a place descending into corruption, totalitarianism, and eventually a genocidal war with its neighbor, Ukraine. Title Redacted combines the raw vulnerability of Forward by Abby Wambach and the obsessive ambition unflinchingly portrayed in Free Solo, together with the immersive writing about ballet, social issues, and place in Life in Motion by Misty Copeland. Redacted is the first American ballerina to sign a soloist contract with Redacted Russian Theater. She currently lives in France, where she performs with the Redacted. She is the subject of two films, Redacted and Redacted. This would be her first book. I am an award-winning journalist who spent over a decade interviewing Redacted while reporting for Redacted in Moscow. I'm currently based in the U.S. where I report for Redacted and live with my family and an overabundance of houseplants. This would be my first book. Thanks for considering our work. I would love to send you the full book proposal. Thanks, Cece. This makes me think of one podcast listener who reached out to say that for the first few times they listened to Books with Hooks, they wondered why so many titles were called Redacted, which really cracked me up. That was hilarious. Okay, so how many words was in that query and what was your take on it? So this is clocking in at 357 words. That's a really good length. It's a great job. Oh boy, so my note for this query letter is pretty straightforward, and it actually speaks to a very common note I offer when I'm critiquing a memoir. I don't see an antagonist. I see two references to antagonistic forces. Reference number one, but soon she finds Russia to be dark, lonely, and completely unintelligible. I see that. Reference number two, the danger of a place descending into corruption, totalitarianism, and eventually a genocidal war with its neighbor, Ukraine. I am quoting these two references so the author knows that I read them, I saw them, I promise I did not miss them. My note still stands. We need an antagonist. There is no antagonist here. What you're referencing are antagonistic forces. In my opinion, for a story to be compelling, we need a person or more than one person. The antagonist can't be an amorphous thing. It can't be like society or the government. And like I said, very common note. I talk to a lot of memoirists who believe that they can publish in the traditional publishing market, the competitive market. I talk to a lot of people who believe that the antagonist can be mental illness or their harsh inner critic. And I'm sorry, no, it's just not compelling enough. I think I actually blame English lit classes because so many of us learned that a central conflict could be man versus self or man versus the environment, and as a larger theme, sure, but not as a on-the-page conflict. All due respect to English lit professors, no, like it can't be. It's just not enough. It won't hold the average reader's attention in 2023. Think about the successful memoirs out there, Aftershocks, 
the antagonist is set up to be the stepmother. Educated, the antagonist is set up to be the brother. The antagonist can even change, right? The antagonist can even redeem themselves later. That's all fine, but we need a person. And usually the reason why authors don't want to include an antagonist is because they're protecting someone. And to me, that's like wanting to be a doctor, but being afraid of seeing blood. Like you, you just have to see blood. You have to be able to. So my note here is quite simple. Let us in, stop protecting whoever you're protecting. And those two references that I read, do away with them. And instead insert whoever the antagonist actually is. Insert specifics. Don't be afraid or rather if you're afraid, because that's fair, do it anyway. Famous last words. Thank you, Cece. Okay, what was in those opening pages? We have a prologue. The protagonist is on a plane about to arrive in Russia. She's thinking to herself that this is something that most people never get to do. She's excited and she's nervous. The prologue ends with the protagonist saying all the things that haven't happened yet. Things like the U.S. State Department hasn't yet issued a level four travel warning for Russia. Putin hasn't returned to the highest office yet, changing the constitution. Ukraine hasn't been invaded yet. And then we move on to chapter one, where the protagonist is thinking when she was visiting her mom in the hospital. She is the fourth child of a big family of what will eventually be a family of nine children. And her little sibling that was just born is baby number five. And then she, there's a little bit of narration about how she grew up different from her neighbors. Thank you. Okay, what was your take on them? Okay, so the quality of the writing is really strong and the sentences are polished. The word choice is clearly intentional. Verbs are strong. What's missing here is seduction. We've said it before and we'll say it again. Storytelling is seduction. It's the art of giving the reader just enough to hook them while not giving them so much that they stop turning the pages. You want them to keep turning the pages. And here, the protagonist is being just super honest. She's on a plane and we're alone with her thoughts. And she's thinking about all the things she's feeling. And she's thinking about big picture things, like the fact that she's moving to Russia. And you know what? Of course she is. That's what anyone would be feeling when they're on a plane about to make this really big life change. It's, it's plausible. It's authentic. It's realistic. It's very well executed in terms of the quality of the writing. Her interiority is reflecting what a person should be thinking but it's not seducing us. And it makes me think that this is not the right place to start. Perhaps if she were interacting with someone, someone who presents an obstacle for her to overcome, not necessarily a big obstacle, it could be like a customs official person, it could be anything, we'd be more curious in that setup because she would have to keep things to herself. She would have to choose what to say, what to withhold, and she'd have to strategize. And we'd get access to you know, what's being left unsaid, her interpreting others, her observing specifics about a person and not like a country. And when that happens, it's usually easier to find a way to build tension and to spark curiosity. I am actually quite pro prologues in memoirs because they often work. I don't think this prologue works though. So I'm not suggesting doing away with the prologue. I'm saying pick a different place. Chapter one. Chapter one is really strong. We only get a little of it but it got me curious because the author did a really great job of showing how she was different from everybody around her. And that kind of contrast, that is just catnip to readers, right? Like readers are like, oh, so you're different. So you're an outsider. Tell me more. Tell me why your family didn't fit in. Show me that. And the good news here is that if you can't find a good place to start the prologue, 
chapter one's working really well. So you can just start with chapter one because that is very compelling. Thank you, Cece. Thank you to you both for these marvelous critiques. Remember, for our Kofi supporters, you can find the Marked Up Britain critiques on the Kofi page every single week. We post them there just after the episode airs in the morning. So you can find all of that there. Right. Let's go to today's guest. Did you know that 70% of all books are sold online via e-commerce? If you're an author wondering how you can get some of that market share, this is for you. Hi, I'm your co-host Carly Waters, and I'm here to tell you how writers can work on their author brand to build an audience and convert those followers into book buyers. Do you ever wonder why so many authors publish their books and later say they didn't sell as many copies as they wanted? It happens over and over and it's all over social media. Authors really think it's a them problem, but not always. They really just weren't shown the way. And I don't want you guys to launch a book and show up at book events and have two people in the chairs. I have helped clients launch books to the bestseller list for over 15 years. I have now built a six module, 10 hour course with all my knowledge. And that will give you the craft and book business information that you won't find anywhere else. And there's an app. Over 100 of you have already joined my new course. And writer Siobhan Moore said, I'm halfway through the course and grieving that I didn't have this information sooner. There's really nowhere else to find it. Worth every penny. Thank you, Siobhan. If you want all that info and everything that will change the course of your writing career, go to carlywaters.com course to learn more and use discount code POD15 for the month of April at checkout. That's POD, P-O-D 15 at checkout over at carlywaters.com course. Hi everyone, this is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. Today's guest grew up in both London and Los Angeles and worked at Sony Music before starting the clothing brand London Loves LA. She lives in London with her husband James and their dog Rocky. The comeback was her first novel and Before We Were Innocent is her second. It's my pleasure to welcome Ella Berman back to the show. Ella, welcome back. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be back. You know, I loved your first novel and I'm always nervous to read a sophomore novel because you're never quite sure that it's called the sophomore slump for a reason. So I was a bit nervous to pick up, you know, and before we were innocent and then I picked it up and oh my God, I tore through it. It was absolutely amazing. So you've, you've completely nailed that. For our listeners, I just want to give you a description. So I'm going to read you the blurb copy. A summer in Greece for three best friends ends in the unthinkable when only two return home in this new novel from Ella Berman. Ten years ago, after a sun-soaked summer spent in Greece, best friends Bess and Joni were cleared of having any involvement in their friend Evangeline's death. 
But that didn't stop the media from ripping apart their teenage lives like vultures. While the girls were never convicted, Joni, ever the opportunist, capitalized on a newfound infamy to become a motivational speaker. Bess, on the other hand, resolved to make her life as small and controlled as possible so she wouldn't risk losing everything all over again. And it almost worked. Except now Joni is tangled up in a crime eerily similar to that one fateful night in Greece. And when she asks Bess to come back to LA to support her, Bess has a decision to make. Is it finally time to face out to what happened that night, exposing herself as the young woman she once was and maybe still is? And what happens if she doesn't like what she finds? Dun, dun, dun. So can we talk about the inspiration for this one, Ella? Because it feels like a story kind of taken from the headlines. Yes, of course. So after I wrote the comeback, I kind of ignored everyone's advice, which is to start working on your second book while the first, you know, before the first one comes out. And it meant that I was, yeah, I just felt kind of completely paralyzed at the thought of starting a new project. And I think I felt so attached to the first book, I guess, you know, as you said, you throw everything into your first novel. So it does mean that the second one, especially if written quickly afterwards, can kind of sometimes feel a bit sparse. So I was in the middle of the pandemic and I'd started working on a second book, which kind of felt like a reaction against the comeback. It was very plotty, very light on, you know, character psyche and I think maybe a reaction to the pandemic as well I just wanted escapism so I went very plot driven and I made the big error of letting my plot drive my characters as opposed to the other way around so I had I'd actually finished two drafts of that book and I was just feeling like I was back at square one and I knew something wasn't working and my mum dropped over my teenage diaries which I started reading and I was just instantly struck by the the kind of intensity within the pages and like just how especially when something had to do with my friendship group it just everything felt so critical and important and you know some of the stuff I was writing as well because it's all unfiltered it was you know fairly I'm going to say gloriously unhinged is the word I'm using to describe it and I was thinking that you know if anything had happened at that age and for whatever reason my own personal life or like you know diary entries or a little later my Facebook posts and messages were made public like how many of us would be emerge unscathed from that you know so it wasn't so much a particular case of this type of falsely accused angle it wasn't like a specific case that inspired me but I just feel like the vilification of of every type of woman in the media is just so prevalent even now and um yeah this is a very roundabout way of saying it was a culmination of everything (laughs) yeah that I think it, it just provided the like emotional entry point I love what you said about making the mistake of letting the plot drive your characters because this is something we talk about all the time and actually on our one deep dive workshop series we had Claire Lombardo author of the most fun we ever had speak to us about characterization because it's so incredibly important and writers keep getting told you need an amazing hook you know it's not enough to write a good book it needs to have an amazing hook so that you know, the comps are clear, et cetera, et cetera. And so writers now are tending to focus more on the hook, on the plot, than on characterization. But if you manipulate your characters through the obstacle course of a plot, they end up just feeling hollow 
And the problem is, is that's what readers connect with. They connect with character as opposed to connecting with plot. Plot keeps them turning pages, but they connect with character. I completely agree. Yeah. And I think I understand why there is this desire for a hook, because, you know, there's very few books that can cut through just, you know, on the basis of like beautiful writing and word of mouth. So I understand even describing this book to people has been so much easier than describing The Comeback, for example, my first book, because that was sort of like, oh, and it's sort of about this woman coming to terms, whereas this one, it is about the same things, but I can really focus on this falsely accused angle and instantly people are like, oh, you know, and compare it to real life cases or they're saying, oh, and they're instantly in. So I think, I don't know, for me, a way sort of around it is to come up with a hooky idea and then write a quite a sensitive deep dive into the psyche of the character going through it, if that makes sense. So I do want the books or I do want the books I write to be page turners and propulsive, but I also want them to be, you know, authentic and sensitively drawn. And I think like we spoke about last time, I want it to be, because I do write about quite intense or serious subjects, I want it to be true to the experience of, of, you know, people going through similar things. And this book's, a lot of it is about the main character sort of experiencing a worldview changing event as a teenager, which then, you know, has shaped the rest of her, her life. So I think it's finding the hook within that, does that, if that makes sense. But yeah, I to- I'm completely with you on the not having the plot drive the drive the characters. Yeah, and certainly not sacrificing characterization for mm. plot. So this is a single POV dual timeline novel. Some of the action takes place in 2008 and some of it in 2018. Can you speak a bit about that in terms of the challenges it presented? And if you had to first figure out everything that happened in 2008, write that whole story before you could come to the future? Or if you were going, okay, I kind of have an idea of what happened and I'm able to go backwards and forwards in this timeline. I think the the 2008 storyline came to me a lot easier than the than the 2018 storyline. I didn't write it consecutively, but it, it sort of unfolded in a way that I expected it to, if that makes sense. There were small changes that I'd go back and make, but that wasn't as difficult for me. Whereas for some reason, I struggled a lot more with the present storyline. And I think because it is more of a mystery in the present and it was in, and it's sort of a skill that I, I hadn't learned yet. So I was sort of learning on the job, you know, that I guess working out when to place certain revelations and because it is first person again, I wanted the reader to feel the same way that Bess, the protagonist did about her best friend, Joni. And I wanted the reader to feel as conflicted and disorientated as as Bess did, while also creating a, a real character in Joni's. So she felt authentic and again, not just a device, if that makes sense. So it was a lot more complicated for me writing the 2008 storyline and also something that my ed- editor really helped me with, with the dual timelines was constantly trying to tighten them so that they reflected each other if that makes sense yeah it was just I mean it was exciting for me because I was I was learning like a whole new skill it was a lot trickier especially the mystery element 
So for our listeners, when you have the kind of story that is so dependent on backstory, so there's something that happened in the past and now the characters are grappling with it now. You know, you could go multiple ways. You can have it all in the present day timeline and then you have flashbacks to the past. You could do what Ella did, which I think was much better as you have this dual timeline narrative. But then, of course, you're always at risk of the past story being so much more interesting so much more compelling than the present day story. So the challenge there is to make the present day story just as page turning, just as propulsive. And that's something that Ella did really, really well. So for those of you who are working on this kind of dual timeline narrative, pick up this book to see how she was able to have this parallel pacing. These two stories that were sort of unfolding at different times, but were woven together, right? So I have a few questions about that. One is, were you ever tempted to write from both Bess's and Joni's perspectives, or even from all three of the girls' perspectives, or was it always just from Bess's? That was it. You were like, I'm writing from this one perspective. It was always from Bess's. And I think that the reason for that is, I think because I write in first person, and it's a very sort of like intimate method of writing I don't think the story would have had the same mystery if I'd written from Joni's point of view as well and I think so much of it is Bess's perception you know misguided or otherwise of her friendship that drives the story and the conflict so I don't think I could have done that on a plot level but also I just write more insular and privately conflicted characters better so I tried in this in this book that I ended up scrapping one of the characters was a lot more she was a lot more confident and she was very showy and you know obviously she had her own inner demons but I found that I just didn't write it as well I didn't write her as well so I think there's something about that sort of the observer that that I can write a lot more authentically Such an excellent point. And for our listeners, we get this question a lot. People are like, I don't know that there's enough plot for just one character. Maybe I'll build in a different POV character, et cetera, et cetera. With this kind of story, it is so reliant on Bess not knowing what's going on in Joni's mind. Is Joni being honest with her? Is Joni lying? What's she hiding from her, et cetera? And had Ella written from Joni's perspective, all of that tension all of that mystery would have been taken out unless she wrote Joni as a really unreliable narrator where we were like, can we believe Joni, you know, or, or should we be skeptical, etc. So these are always things to, to consider when you're deciding single POV or dual POV, as opposed to just, I need some story to fill up my pages, right? Let's talk about this dropping the clues while withholding information. Because the present day narrative, so much of what drives that is that the reader doesn't know what happened in the past. Bess knows what happens in the past, but she's keeping that from us. And we keep turning the pages to go, okay, what the hell happened back in Greece? And that kind of drives the narrative forward. The problem with that is there are times that the reader can feel manipulated. And I myself have thrown books across a room when I'm feeling overly manipulated. And I know you say you come to writing intuitively, so I don't imagine that this is something you mapped out in terms of plotting, but what advice do you have for our listeners in terms of planting those curiosity seeds without giving too much away and without pissing the reader off with the manipulation? I think that's such a good question. I'm not sure I have a, I'm not sure that I have an answer for it. I think that I tried to let the 2008 storyline 
unfold quite naturally like there's only a few instances where I inserted a sense of foreboding for what was to come and I think I don't know but I think if I'd done too many of those it might have got a little frustrating for the reader I mean it still might be frustrating (laughs) the um the past storyline but I think that I just tried to include enough that the events meant something to the reader so enough backstory in the backstory that you know, the reader felt invested in the story of these women, these young women, but I didn't want to keep it going for too long. And I think in the present storyline, quite quickly, I mentioned that, you know, Evangeline died that summer within the first chapter, I'd say, and that they were, the other two girls were sort of vilified in the media. So the crux of what happened is seeded you know I think if you had told us immediately Mm. in the opening chapter this is everything that happened back in Greece like we don't trust each other because x happened etc etc or I feel indebted to her because of x happened that takes all the tension out of the piece right so it's giving the reader just enough information that they know something happened but withholding the kind of details that the reader desperately wants to know and that's what keeps them turning those pages yes I think it was important it's important to give enough information in every chapter so you want the reader to learn something new and you want it to drive forwards in every single chapter without giving too much away if that makes sense but I, I definitely wanted the reader to feel to know enough about these characters and their stories and and how they'd got to this point to feel invested in what happened to them in the future and I think just I didn't want to include anything that felt boring to write and would feel boring to read as a result you know so I just I just I figured that if I felt passionately about something or that it should be included then that would come across in the um, writing process and then hopefully the readers would feel the same. Yeah and you forced us as readers to do quite a lot of heavy lifting which I love I hate being spoon-fed things in a novel I want to be theorizing I want to be actively participating in the story that I'm reading. And this is something, you know, Cece says on the podcast all the time. You need to come up with theories. You need to be going, ooh, this is interesting. This is a clue. I'm thinking this is what happened. And then later you find out you're wrong. And that was done so expertly here because a lot of the times I had to decide, am I going to give Bess the benefit of the doubt? Is she a reliable narrator? Is she an unreliable narrator? Did she do something awful and then got vindicated anyway? Or were they really innocent, which is why they, you know, didn't spend their lives in prison? And these kinds of questions that I was theorizing throughout got me so tangled up in the psyche of the character that it was amazing because I was trying to psychoanalyze her the entire time. I'm looking for clues. I'm like, Bess, you know, what's going on here, honey? What's this? What's happening? And 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 that is something that is so magical when you're able to get the reader to actively participate in the story as opposed to just being a passive recipient of the story. Yes and I think that I think a really exciting part of writing the character of Bess was sort of including these these like darker facets of her personality so like you know I don't dwell on them but at the start of the book she goes out to a to a bar and makes out with a stranger and then just there's no mention of it again sort of a very like furtive yeah just strange and and lonely experience and then there's sort of there's hints of her cruelty or darkness when she's younger but it's not fully 
explored. And I think those sort of, yeah, I guess different dimensions to her character or to any protagonist's character make them more interesting, as you said, because, yeah, then you're sort of second guessing their motives or whether they're telling the truth or whether they're, yeah, even telling the truth to themselves. So, yeah, she was a really fun character to write. And the social commentary as well, because despite being immersed in the story, turning the pages, wanting to find out what was happening, I was also thinking so much about, like you said, how the media can take young women and completely vilify them, can go back and look at the most innocuous statements they made or something they put on social media that out of context makes them look like a monster. And the whole time I was reading this and I was looking at what these young girls were going through and they passed each other notes. And, you know, when you're that age, you, you're you trying to pretend you're bulletproof. And so you make these kind of cynical, jaded comments to protect yourself, really. But out of context, it makes you seem like an unfeeling person. So there was a lot of social commentary in here as well. But on the surface, neither of these characters are really likable you do such a good job of portraying them in a nuanced way that there's good parts of them and then there's these parts that you just kind of cringe that they did these things even though you know that they were young when they did them etc so how are you able to do that balancing act where the character is both someone that the reader is getting invested in and they're rooting for them but at the same time they kind of cringing at the awful things that they've done Well, thank you so much, first of all. But I I think for me, a big part of that is including enough backstory that almost anything can be forgivable. And I think, you know, it's something that I explore both in this book and the comeback. For better or for worse, once we think we know someone's heart or their childhood traumas or woes, we think we can explain their present. And I think I'm not sure where I stand on, you know, how forgiving we should be of people just because of what they went through in the past. But I know that, you know, with your friends, often you can give them a pass because you know, oh, they're doing this because this happened to them a year ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago. And I think that it's the same thing with my characters. I hope that I've given them enough context that even if we don't like how they're acting, we can understand how they're acting. Yeah, so for our listeners, for example, with Joni, you know, she can seem really cynical, cutting, etc. And then we find out that she has had this very miserable childhood with a father who just left, a mother who, you know, was struggling with the fallout of all of that. And then even that makes sense in Joni's present day narrative, because she's now flipped this all around. She's become this public speaker. And it makes sense that someone whose father left and they never felt seen by their father or supported by them, kind of turns to strangers on the motivational speaking circuit to adore them and fill this gaping void where she must have always thought, what's wrong with me? Why did my father leave? Why couldn't he love me? And now she's getting all the love of all these strangers in her present day occupation. So it's so important how these kind of character misbeliefs and their backstory kind of explains their behavior and the psychology of them along the way. Was that something that you were paying a lot of attention to while developing Joni, for example? I think so, yes. I think that it, I think I've said before that my characters, they come to me at like a certain point in their lives. So both Joni and Bess, I thought about them in the present first, and then I sort of go backwards and unravel what happened to get them to those points in their lives and you know they're kind of polar opposites in the 2018 storyline because 
Bess has made her life very small and she's living a very isolated existence, whereas Joni has, you know, seemingly made her life very big. And yet she is this motivational speaker. I think it feels like they, again, it it feels quite intuitive, but I think as writers, if you're interested in people, which presumably most of us are, like you are a huge part of that is someone's motivation and their childhood. And even if you don't include that in the in the book, I just think it's important to have an idea of of what that is and what their, you know, the pivotal moments in their lives were. Because so with Joni's parents, as you mentioned, I think her dad leaving is is mentioned three times in the book. So it's not it doesn't get its own chapter. It doesn't even get its own scene. It's just sort of just something that Bess is aware is happening and that could have shaped Joni or could be shaping her. But it's just more for for me to know that that was, you know, a hugely pivotal thing. And it makes sense then for the reader how she acts, you know, that she acts the way she does. Yeah. And it makes sense that Bess only knows about these things fleetingly because Joni is kind of a closed book, right? She doesn't like to make herself vulnerable. She doesn't want her friends to know that this has happened to her because she's ashamed of it. And so that makes you know complete sense there as well but I think what the readers connect with a lot here is their vulnerability I think I I can't imagine any woman you know reading this and not feeling some form of sympathy to them when they think back to like you say their girlhood diaries their teenage diaries the things that felt so huge and so important while you know your brain chemistry is still developing and you look back on these things and you cringe at them and you kind of just go thank god that didn't happen to me because god knows what the press would have been able to sort of you know dig up I just thank my lucky stars every day that I was not a teenager while there were cell phone cameras so (laughs) there's that as well. I often think exactly the same yeah and even now I think if my texts were ever you know, read out in a court, I don't think I'd stand, I don't think I'd come across great. So I know that when, when that bad art friend broke the, you know, the bad art friend mm. sort of story where that whole writing group's WhatsApps were shredded to look for evidence, etc., and to look at every sort of bitchy thing anyone said, I know my writing group at the time was like, okay, let's just delete our whole thread <laughs> right now because we're going to look like monsters when these things are taken out of I context. Honestly, yeah, but I mean, I think it's something that's been around for, you know, literally as long as humans have, but it's just unfortunately now recorded and <laughs> in written form. So yeah, I think we're, there's a lot of adapting and figuring it out. But yeah, in 2008, I think we really didn't have an awareness of how out of control things were going to get and I think I remember recently I think there was a or maybe a year or two ago everyone was panicking that they were Facebook were publishing private messages and I remember looking going on into my old Facebook and looking and thinking oh these must have been private messages we revealed so much in these and in these exchanges and then it turned out that was just how we spoke to each other because you know you had 20 friends and they were the people you saw every day. So you just wrote to them like you would text your, you know, your best friend. But it was, we didn't realize how just, yeah, out of control it was going to get. So I think, I think setting it in 2008, it was just a very like pivotal turning point between us, you know, having access to these sort of social networks before we understood the, you know, capabilities of them and risks. 
Hence the awesome title, Before We Were Innocent. So yeah, 100%. Ella, it was so lovely chatting with you. For our listeners, go get Before We Were Innocent. Like I say, an amazing character study, nuanced characters, wonderful exercise in, in pacing, in the dual timeline narrative, and just a propulsive read. So we look forward to seeing what you do next, Ella. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on.